Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Welcome back, everybody, another episode of the Habitat Podcast. This podcast is the podcast for becoming better habitat managers. I'm your host, as always, Jared Van Hees. I want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. We have a Michigan boy episode, Randy Vanderveen, out of Michigan here. He is part of... Um, some of the Habitat guys you've heard and seen for a long time. I know he's friends with Jake Elinger. Uh, he has his own thing going on over at Seymour Bucks and Strategic Habitat. Randy, I followed for five or six years now on YouTube and his website. And I've just always been drawn to, to how much work he puts in out in the woods, whether it's March, April, May. You know, he's, he's at it all year long. And he shares his, uh, his information with the rest of us on social media, his website, etc. So I figured it'd be a great guest to get on here. So stick along, guys. Randy's going to be here real shortly. First, I want to cover our sponsors. We cannot do this without the loyal sponsors of the podcast. Sponsor number one, the Habitat Hook from Nick Nation and Nation's Creations. I was just on his website, and if you're not sure what the Habitat Hook is, Go on his website, nationscreations.net, and on the left-hand side, you'll see a link that says videos. Go ahead and click that. You'll see some great examples of guys like Jim Browker using the Habitat hook and showing how it works, the advantages to it, etc. This would be a perfect thing to buy yourself or maybe have your wife buy you for Christmas this year, coming right up. And they are made from steel or aluminum. There are a few different versions, so whatever price point you feel like spending, go ahead and check them out, guys. Nationscreations.net. If you call Nick and tell him the podcast sent you, he might be able to hook you up. Just keep that in mind. Our next sponsor, I know you guys have heard me talk about the Packer Max line of cultipackers before. Well, that's because Lincoln is the man. He's a very good guy. I support him. I love his product. My food plots look, I, I'm not kidding, they look really good. And I'm pretty new at this whole thing. So I know the Cultipacker was a big part of that. I know rain and good seed and things like that are also a part of that. But, guys, you should be packing your soil. Uh, do the research on it. You'll find out that the advantages of a Cultipacker are, are very good. And, uh, you know, if you call Lincoln, you can get, 10% off by saying you're a podcast listener. 
So I recommend you do that. Again, another good Christmas present for yourself uh, and or, hey, hey, wifey poo, buy me one of these, you know. So I'm happy with mine. I urge you guys to at least check them out. Lincoln Roan actually just got back from Canada, Saskatchewan, with a gigantic buck. He shot a, a freaking hog up there. Uh, so hopefully in the future we'll get him on here to tell us that story. But in the meantime, check out his website, packermax.com. Look him up on Facebook, and it's just a really good product, guys. Uh, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say that if I didn't believe it. So, All right, enough of the business side of things. Let's get right into the podcast. Randy Vanderveen from Michigan. Here we go. And welcome back, everybody. We have my co-host Brian on the line. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing good, Jared. How are you? Good, buddy. Thanks for joining. And our special guest, none other than Randy Vanderveen here out of Michigan. How are you, Randy? Hey, real good, Jared. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate your time. You bet. You bet. I know it's, uh, you know, middle of bow season, but it's dark out, so you shouldn't be hunting right now. So hopefully, you know, we can borrow like an hour or so of your time, if that's all right. Well, you know, I could be out tracking a deer, but other than that. Uh, <laughs> Touche. Touche. <laughs> That's good timing, good timing. Good, good. Well, uh, thanks again. I want to get this get this going here. We always start out the podcast. Um, if you've heard this before in the past, you know we like to find out a little bit about who the guest is, where they're from. As I've said a bunch of times, now paint the picture. So if, if you don't mind, go ahead and start off, and, uh, you know, we'll chime in where we see fit, I guess. Sure. Yeah, well, as far as, uh, you know, moving around the country, um, it gets about as, you know, my, my life is about as simple as it gets. I was, you know, born and raised in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, and, uh, you know, still live and hunt in this area. Um, you know, I went to Covenant Christian High School, which is uh, an area of Grand Rapids uh, High School. Met my uh, met my wife over there at the, at the high school. We've uh, I don't know, what is it, year 38 now, like 38 years ago. Um, wow. We've got, uh, you know, three daughters, three wonderful daughters who, who by the way, have um, all shot their first deer with a bow out of a tree saddle before they were out of high school. Out of a and, saddle, uh, too? Yeah, yeah, wow. you bet. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it, it's you know they all live right around here in Grand Appajet, so you know we're we're pretty much uh, homebodies here in, in Southwest Michigan. And uh, I guess as far as you know what my passions are, um, I guess first you know it's it's my faith, my family, um, work, and and then uh, the great outdoors. And I, I would say you know maybe well, a few years ago I was lucky enough to kind of merge the last two together, uh, working outdoors and in, in the same in the same, uh, you know, passion there. So, um, you know, I started a pallet company back in 91 and, uh, you know, grew that for a while. Um, kind of funny thing there was, uh, you know, I was working at a, a local printing company at the time and, and got into doing uh, work in a pallet company and, and then uh, decided, you know what, uh, I wasn't able to, afford to stay working at the printing company anymore because it was getting in the way of doing pallets. So went into pallets full-time about 1999, and a couple years later decided, you know what, if I'm going to grow this thing, I have to get in, get into another building. So built a building, 
uh, 12,000 square foot more dock space and just going to help us to be more efficient. Wow. And the day, the day that I moved out of the old place with no docks into the new place was on 9-11. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, uh, that was a big step for me, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm watching these burnings, you know, these buildings burn and, you know, the financial center is like, wow, what did I just do, you know? <laughs> but, no, it, it was all good. It was all good. We continued to grow and, and uh, you know, yeah, it. Uh, and my daughter's working for me and, uh, you know, put them through high school and all that good stuff. And and funny thing is the, the shop is right inside of an industrial park. And I don't know, so, some of you guys that might have seen some videos from way back when remember some of the footage that me and my daughter had off this little food plot we created right in the middle of an industrial park. I mean, it's literally surrounded by hundreds of workers and buildings, and we were the only people that hunted it, you know. <laughs> so wow. that, that, Yeah, that was, and really that was probably where I cut my teeth on, on improving habitat. It was back in 2003 inside an industrial park. <laughs> yeah. I think it was like a background. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and it worked like a champ. And we had so many fun hunts together. And, and uh, you know, the girls could get done with work. And, you know, who cared about scent control back then, right? Shoot, we got changed and walked right out into the woods and, you know, went hunting. So, right. But, uh, yeah, how things have changed, you know. and. Um, funny thing is, I, I still hunt a couple of uh, different industrial parks uh, to this day. And, uh, you know, it really is a lot of fun hunting industrial parks. It's kind of funny how, you know, you got hundreds of guys at work in these buildings nearby and nobody even nobody even goes in there. It, it's really kind of comical. Hmm. So, um, but, yeah, then, uh, you know, I found uh, – uh, Found John Everhard, you know, way back, uh, I don't know, early 2000s. You know, that's when I, probably like a lot of guys, uh, probably learned a lot about deer behavior through John Everhard's books. And that's, you know, that, he's the one that turned me on to the tree saddle. And, uh, you know, it really is the ultimate way to, to hunt public land and hunt out of state. And so uh, back about, I think, 2004 was probably the first time I went out of state, went down Ohio and, Literally saw as many um, mature bucks in a three-day weekend as I did in probably you know five years back here in Michigan. <laughs> wow, <laughs> just incredible! And from then on, I was hooked. You know, so pretty much go out of state every year. Uh, this is going to be the first year that I'm, I'm not going out of state, only because I'm going to try and concentrate a little bit more on up in the uh, APR zone up in northern Michigan. Okay, and do yeah. you have property up in northern Michigan, or uh, I, I know I've seen you do some some work on some properties up there, but um, do you own anything up there, or do you have friends that you hunt on, or how's that work? Yeah, a little bit of both. Well, you know, I, I bought a piece of I uh, bought a fifty acre piece of property over in Lake County uh, back in twenty fifteen, and uh, not really for the purpose of hanging on to it, and you know putting up some sort of cabin or anything like that and, you know, hunting there for years. It really wasn't the idea. Um, you know, back in 2015, APRs were still rather new. It was only the second or third year into it. And I knew what the results were going to be as far as the buck age uh, structure up there. 
And so I figured, you know what, if I'm going to buy a piece of property, why not buy in the APR zone? And then probably in a couple, three years, um, when, when the word gets out and, you know, these uh, pictures start coming back with all these trophy bucks from up north, uh, there, there may be a lot of demand for property up there. So, True. you know, I picked up this 50 acres and, and the reason I picked up this particular 50 was because it was in a huge area of miles of just over mature timber. I mean, oaks and, and you name it, you know, it was just uh, wide open. And then this little 50 acres had been select cut four years prior. And, you know, the the, uh, the popple and the maple were, was all removed off the property four years prior, and they left all the oaks. And it, it just couldn't have been a better scenario. And it was a little bit of rolling hills and whatnot. The only bad thing about it was, well, it was real, real sandy soil. And, uh, you know, the, the bracken ferns up there, you know, they're almost, you know, like bracken fern on steroids. And, um, yeah, so it was, uh, you know, the, the new regeneration had a four-year head start. It's not like I had to have somebody come in and then, you know, wait for four or five years. It was already off to a great start. Popple, maple were up, you know, already 10, 12 feet. So Nice. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I knew that, you know, boy, I wonder what's going to happen when the when the lead starts flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I knew what was going to happen. The place would probably fill up with deer because it was the only thick cover around anywhere, you know. And uh, right. so it, the problem with some of that, though, is, you know, it's so thick and just so tight with all this uh, poplar regrowth is, you know, the big bucks couldn't even walk through it. You know, any buck with a 16-inch spread was going to have, you know, issues getting through that stuff. So we created a, a food plot trail, probably on average like six to seven feet wide, all the way through the property, going from one end, going around, and coming back the other end. And, uh, it, you know, it's a, it was a really long, skinny, narrow property. And um, me and my son-in-law worked on it almost all summer, you know, and, man, and then Jake comes along, Jake Elinger, good friend of mine. He comes along and says, hey, I'm working on this property, and uh, I had this forestry mulcher come in. And he created some food plots, and he created some trails. And I'm going, <laughs> are you serious? Jake, where were you this four months? How come you didn't tell me this four months ago? <laughs> well, and, and how did you make your, your trail and your path? Oh, man, I'm telling you, we, we uh, grabbed one of these uh, – you know, industrial-sized weed wax, right? And, you know, the heavy-duty ones that's supposedly supposed to go through, you know, small brush and small trees and whatnot, had the metal blade on the on the bottom. And, uh, yeah, you know, we, we went through there, and actually it was early April, and the morning we got up there to do it, there was a, a snowstorm prior, so it was about two, three inches of snow on the ground, so we couldn't really see where we were going very well, and it, it was just a challenge all the way around. And then we had to take care of the stumps later, and, you know, we had to blow off all the leaves, and, um, man, it just, it was, it was a lot of work. And um, had we had the forestry mulcher, I'm not kidding you guys, he would have been able to do everything that took us three to four months, he would have been able to do that in probably two hours and been done. And we'd, it would have been wow. full plot ready. Yeah, so... You know, if anybody, out there, <laughs> if anybody out there has a really thick property, and, you know, you want to carve out a food plot or you want to carve out some um, food plot trails and, and whatever, man, a forestry mulcher is the only way to go. You know, they're they're kind of pricey on the day that he's there. 
But, man, I'll tell you, it, it saves you so much time and energy and sweat and heartache and stuff, uh, you know, throughout weeks and months uh, that, that it would take you to equal the amount of work that a forestry mulcher can do, you know. Oh, man. Hindsight Absolutely. is 2020. Uh, yep. <clears throat> I, uh, that, that reminds me. So I know we kind of had some things we wanted to talk about, and since you brought up the mulcher, I figured, and your property, maybe we talk about, the 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 fourth thing on the list there about the plan that you used on this northern Michigan property and if if anybody is not from Michigan and is not familiar uh, deer hunting used to be great in the UP and then the further you move south uh, it actually kind of kind of trickled down to to less and less uh, or, or worse deer hunting if you will but since the forestry is kind of you know, decrease in the UP and and farming has really took off here in the southern lower peninsula. It's kind of switched. Uh, do I have that correct, Randy? Yep, yep, you're exactly right. So where Randy's at, he's in the northern lower peninsula, and uh, while it's not the UP in terms of toughness, it's pretty tough hunting up there. I, I rifle hunt up there every year, uh, kind of across the state from him, and and let me tell you why it's. It's tough hunting. So what I wanted to talk about was the property you bought. Why did you go in there with, um, well, you didn't use the mulcher. You used weed whips uh, like a bunch of hard asses. I'm just curious, like, like what was your plan, and, and why did you do the, the path through it and back? And um, I just kind of want to talk about your strategy there and, and if it worked or, or what you've seen so far. Right. Well, um Part of the strategy uh, behind it was the fact that because that property was so thick that we didn't believe that we would be able to get as much buck movement, you know, going back and forth on the property and, you know, going from this little food plot over to that little food plot and from this bedding area to that bedding area. Because it was so thick, you know, we figured, man, we got to get, uh, we got to allow these bucks, um, you know, some some room to move on this property because uh, it, it was almost the case on on the south side. It was so thick and so dense that uh, they either had they had two choices to get from the east side to the west side of the property, and that would be to go down the two track that went right through the center of the property, or they would have to leave our property and walk along the southern edge uh, just outside my border to get to the other side. You know, because the interior was just so thick. So what we wanted to do was you know, create some, some isolated bedding areas um, along this food plot trail. And it would probably be does bedding there. Uh, we we kind of knew where the where the bucks were bedding, way off on the west end. But, you know, it was hard for the bucks to get over to the east end unless they wanted to either walk on the outside of our property or walk down the two-track. And a mature buck, we just feel, wasn't going to do that. You know, so let's, let's create this food plot trail and allow them to stay right inside the cover and, uh, you know, Navigate the property that way. So, the, the let's see, it was the second year, the first year after we had the, the food plot trail made, uh, my son-in-law shot um, a two-and-a-half-year-old, but, man, it was the widest two-and-a-half-year-old I had ever seen. It was, and, you know, once we uh, had it on the ground, it was like, wow, you know, I probably would have shot that too, Joel, even though we, <laughs> we had a three-and-a-half-year-old uh, limit, right? Yeah. That thing was so wide. How wide? That, uh Oh, if I remember right, I think it was it was around eighteen and a half or nineteen inches. Jeez. 
Yeah, so I, you know, for for a two year old, that was that was incredible. Was but and then and then my uh, the next year, my daughter, my youngest daughter, who was I don't know, she was nineteen or twenty at the time. Uh, she missed our number one target buck. Um, you know, sitting in a tree late late October. And, uh, you know, I, I had let a bunch of, um, you know, two and a half go by and, and, uh, you know, I never took a nice buck off that property, but, um, you know, we had a lot of great hunts. Um, and, and it, it really was a case where the further we got into hunting season, uh, the, the more bucks that we saw on that property. And, and I, I really do think it was because we didn't hunt it very hard. Uh, we, you know, we all used extreme scent control. And um, and it was just you know the thickest piece of property around anywhere. So these bucks really wanted to you know go somewhere and hide and get away from all the uh, you know the state land army. Uh, our property was was the place to go. Well, and, and plus we had we we're probably the only ones that were planting flu plots. You know we had neighbors that were putting out uh, bay piles and, and all that stuff, but uh, we had green food and probably some of the only green food around in November. You know. Wow. So, mm-hmm. And how big was that buck that your daughter had a chance at, if you don't mind? That was, uh, it was at least um, at least a 125. It was a really nice um, symmetrical 10-point we had had on a trail cam coming to our one of our water holes that we had installed and uh, pretty regularly. And she had a crack at him. But, um, man, you know, it's, yeah, it's Murphy's Law. Yeah, <laughs> she didn't. Uh, she didn't knock the arrow tight onto her string, and when she put, when she drew back on it, her arrow fell off the string and fell to the ground. It's like, wow, that never happens to her. Oh, <laughs> never happens. I mean, she's a she's a really good shot, and she's got great form and everything. You know, and it just didn't put the arrow on tight on the string, and it's like, really, it had to be that one time, right? So, oh, that's when it happens. Yeah, you're not kidding. That's Murphy's that'd Law be, right there. No doubt. <laughs> yeah. So well, that, that's a nice buck. That's, that's a nice buck down here. Um, that's definitely a nice buck up there. And uh, so it seemed that your your plan of of keeping the the circular motion with that that food plot path, and you're you're hunting the edges of the path, if you will, and the thickest property around. I mean that's all. That all sounds really good. Um, now, what was the point of the the circular motion? Is I'm, I assume you want to keep them on your property longer, but like, did that do anything for in terms of daylight opportunities at bucks, or was that the thickness of the cover, or or what was your strategy there? You know, it, it wasn't. It wasn't really uh, the the idea. Really, wasn't to get bucks to you know walk around on the property in a circular motion. Um, you know, we, we figured we, we just need to get these bucks the opportunity just to get from one end to the other and, and, and not have to leave cover. But but I'll tell you, Jared, I, I really think that um, – I think the cover was almost too tight. It was almost too dense. Wow. And, and I really do think that these mature bucks, when they're on – a food plot trail like that, and it was a winding food plot trail. You know, it wasn't straight. We don't want these bucks to see, you know, in one direction very long, very far. So we kind of S-curved it all the way through. But I'll tell you, if um, if that buck encountered something onto that food plot trail and he had to go right or left, he would, he would have had a hard time in some spots because it was just too dense. 
I don't yeah. think he could get through, you know. <laughs> so, and I've noticed right. that. I, I've noticed that up in the UP. Um, I've noticed that, um, you know, especially in, in high hunting pressured areas. Not so much down in, in say, you know, Illinois or Ohio. Um, that, that doesn't seem to be the issue over there. But, man, these high hunting pressured areas, um, you know, John Comp's got the thing on his property. I was up there last or earlier this year, and and uh, he had the same thing. He had a he had a trail going right through uh, some conifers, and these conifers were tight. And you know, we could hardly walk through there, except you know, the food plot trail had hardly no deer tracks on it in the snow, going right through going right through these conifers. But everywhere else on the property, I mean, it looked like they were having a party out there, but they would not go through. This food plot or this this trail that was just uh, you know uh, it was like a canyon going through there with with conifers on both sides and very few tracks. Death trap. So, yep. Yep. Exactly. So you know, yeah, it's good to have thick property, and but man, it, it, you know, if you really if you don't give these uh, mature bucks the opportunity to go right or left, they, they're probably not going to use it at all. So now, Randy, we're uh, talking about. 50-acre piece of property, and I'm in the same boat with 40 acres. Sometimes uh, you got to be careful not to overhunt or overpressure those stands. What does that specifically mean in your part of the world up there in Michigan, Um, and how do you avoid doing that? Well, you know, it's a few ways, and and first it starts with good scent control. And, And I firmly believe that you know, having scent-free boots, about as scent-free as you can get them, is is one huge factor. Um, you know, scent is something that we as hunters, we, we, we can't smell it ourselves because our, our noses aren't good enough. You know, we can't see it. And so we kind of tend to discount it, uh, out of sight, out of mind. But, man, that scent on your boots is real. And and so, you know, what we do is, is we, we've got our boots always in a tub, a rubber-made tub with carbon-activated powder in it. And after every hunt, um, I'm either washing off my boots and putting it on a boot dryer. I'll sprinkle some baking soda or zeolite inside of my boots. Um, and then I'll put, uh, before I go hunting, I'll take them off the boot dryer, put them in my tote, and uh, shake it up with a carbon-activated powder. So, you know, my outside of my boots are black. And so, you know, I, I've decrease the amount of scent on my boots as much as possible because, you know, when you're walking to your stands and uh, even, even if you've got to walk over uh, 15, 15 yards off your trail to go slap a card out of a card, um, it drives me crazy to have to do that during the hunting season because uh, I know what happens is is after it gets dark and, and, you know, we as hunters are sitting at home and, you know, whenever watching Monday Night Football after after we've gone hunting, you know, at midnight you've got these mature bucks that have they've got the run of the property. It's they're under the cover of darkness. They're not shy to go anywhere like they are during the day. And I think we get scent busted more at night than we do during the day while we're on our stand because of the foot trail that we're leaving behind. And these mature bucks know exactly what's right. going on. You know, every trail camera's got human scent going to it. Every tree stand's got human scent going to it. And, um, you know, I, I really think that, uh, and I was guilty of this just as much as anybody else, um, but, you know, I just took it for granted, and um, I discounted a mature buck's ability to avoid 
hunters in the woods, especially once they reach three years of age. They go here, you know, and in Michigan, it's 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 just unbelievable the difference between a two and a half year old and a three and a half year old's behavior uh, on video. When you get to watch them side by side, I've had a lot of opportunity in the last couple of years to see that, and it, it's like it's like the difference between uh you know a two and a half year old. I, I just equate that to being like a a twenty year old teenager, and a, and a three and a half year old buck is like a thirty year old teenager, or okay. a thirty a thirty year old man. You know, there, there's a big difference there between, you know, the 20-year-old thinks he's pretty invincible. He hasn't really experienced a lot of life lessons yet. He thinks he's pretty tough. Where the 30-year-old is, he's a lot wiser. And, uh, you know, so, for instance, I, you know, I've been able to uh, observe, um, especially in August, it was a, a property I was working on, and a trail came up there in video mode. 12 feet up in a tree, and um, oop, our lights just went out. We got some you know, thunderstorm going through here. <laughs> yeah, it hit me hard earlier. Well, we still got. <laughs> oh, so really? I'm kind, of, I'm kind of sitting here in the dark. Anyway, no big deal. Just going out of cell. But but anyway, um, Randy, that's dedication. <laughs> but no, about this uh, <laughs> these two bucks. I had a I had a two and a half year old and a three and a half year old uh, walk underneath this apple tree. They're both in velvet, yeah. It's uh, August 30. And this two-year-old dives right into the multiflora rose, and he's sniffing for apples. And he finds an apple, and he's sitting there munching, and he's got his head down in the weeds and whatnot. Meanwhile, his buddy, the three-and-a-half-year-old, uh, perfectly symmetrical 10-point, he's standing there, and that's all he's doing. He's looking around. And he was going to cross this water crossing, but he stood there and he looked, he put his head up, and he's sniffing all the, he's sniffing every single twig that's on the side of that trail. And then he's sniffing the ground, you know, past where he's going to go in. He got on, he got on this other trail and he, you know, had to sniff that. He was gone for like, I'm going to say 10 seconds, then he comes right back into the field of view again. And he's sniffing everything. Meanwhile, the two and a half is sitting there with his head in the weeds, eating apples. You know, Mr. Hungry and Mr. Cautious. <laughs> it, wow. it, it, it really is incredible, and and I've I've tried to catch a lot more of that type of footage with my trail cams. I run I run a lot of trail cameras, and and all of them are on video mode. And man, I I'll tell you, the the amount of information and education you can get with video mode is is amazing. And one of the first things I've learned is that you know mature bucks in Michigan just don't like those little plastic boxes on the side of a tree with flashing lights and snowy straps on them sure yeah yeah and and before we get into the trail cameras how do you know though which which stands you're overhunting or how do i know you saw that buck possibly i mean did you walk past your trail and possibly smell where you walked in or or how do you know if you're overhunting or how do you know if um you're having issues and you need to adjust. Um, I think the number one way to be able to find out if you're overhunting is through uh, trail camera intel. Okay. Um, I'll run multiple cameras on on the same spot, and you know I'll maybe have one point one way, and I'll have another one point the other way, um, and, and just to see how deer will react to uh, you know my my scent from, you know, leaving a trail camera out. And, you know, the good thing about your your 
you know, my scent that I leave on the ground when I hang a trail camera is that it'll dissipate after a while. But, okay. you know, if you leave it, if you leave a trail camera at three to four feet off the ground on a tree, you know, that thing is always there every day. And that, that strap, I think, is, is leaving off more scent than the actual camera is because those straps are, it's a porous material. And, you know, we've got our cameras in the back of our truck and sitting in at home and, you know, absorbing all these odors. We're touching the strap, you know, and I think the plastic will, you know, that scent will dissipate. And I spray them, I spray them down anyway. But, you know, it's kind of like the uh, trigger release that you wear on your hand, you know, when you're hunting. Uh, you know, you, you wear it all summer long, and it, it's just absorbing all the sweat from your body. And those trigger release straps, you know, really probably really stink if we could actually smell them. And it's probably, the, I think, a big culprit of getting scent busted out in the woods. So, wow. you know, I'm always, I'm always covering my, uh, my trigger release straps, you know, with uh, carbon activated powder. I'll just shake it up with, you know, some of my other gear and, and a tote before every hunt. So, um, that's you know, a good tip. You know, it's the same thing with the straps. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't use any straps anymore. I got rid of those things and I just use these little, uh, swivels that you can make with uh, parts from the hardware store for about three bucks a piece. And, uh, you know, I, I put them up in a tree, probably 10 to 12 feet. That's all it takes is like one, one section of climbing stick or, or three screw and a mirror step, tree steps. And voila, you know, it only takes about an extra 10, 15 seconds to get 10 feet up in a tree. And yeah. It's right there at head level, just mounted up there, and the deer will never be able to, you know. I, I Deer never see my cameras anymore. They don't ever look at them. They, they obviously can't smell them. And um, I get a lot more deer activity in front of my cameras now than I ever used to when I had them three, four feet off the ground. So, um, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think it's through the trail cam intel okay. that you can, you can tell if you're overhunting a property. Because all of a sudden the deer activity will just tail right off, and I, I'm sure everybody has probably got that. You know, it's it's kind of funny when you put a trail cam out there. All of a sudden, you'll get a couple deer maybe the very first day, and all of a sudden nothing for like five or six days. It's like what the world. And then all of a sudden, about a week later, they start you know filing in again. And, and I really do believe in some cases that it's because you know our, our footprints and uh, you know were picked up by deer. And, you know, they're smelling that camera. And so it's, it's no longer um, a place that's void of human odor. And so that's, that's, just, one, that's just one example of, I think, uh, one, one item that adds to our um, ability to overhunt an area. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So I kind of have a, a two-part follow-up to that. Uh, one would be how often do you check those cameras uh, because you still have to walk to the camera, even though it's up in the tree. Even and, and I like the up in the tree and pointing down. I, I've actually started doing that and starting using video mode, and you can learn a lot more, uh, especially if you have a quiet camera and not one that makes a click noise when it, when it actuates. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of a huge thing too. But and then secondly, um, you're trying to avoid overhunting and overpressuring stands. But you have to go check these cameras, and you have this one piece of property. What else do you do to just, you know, stay out of there? Well, as far as, you know, camera use goes, um, you know, I used to be a big proponent of pulling all my cameras out of my core areas. You know, my 
my best buck spots, you know, where I'm going to, these stands I'm only going to hunt, say, around Halloween or later. And those are my, considered my core areas, you know, thou shalt not go there in October or, or at least before October 27 or whatever. Um, I'm starting to change my tune on that a little bit only because of now the way I'm, I'm using my cell cameras or uh, trail cameras. So, you know, the four rules that I have personally for trail cameras is they got to be black flash. Um, they got to be mounted up high, uh, mounted with a swivel mount so that you can get rid of the strap, and then in video mode. And so that's how I that's how I use all my cameras now. And so because of that, I, I never have deer look at it. I never have them smell it. The only time they're ever going to smell anything is when I initially walk to that tree and put it up there. So what I do now is shoot. I put these cameras right up in the tree that I'm actually hunting. So when I go sit in a when I go sit in a certain tree, um, the camera's right there. I'll just swap out the card, check the batteries. You know, I've got batteries with me. If the batteries are a little bit too low, you know, it gives me an opportunity to swap those out as well. And so I'm not uh, creating any more steps going to any other tree in my hunting area. Wow! And then if you have a buck on camera, uh, it's very likely that you might have a, an opportunity of said buck within range of your tree stand. Um, yeah, yeah. And and sometimes, um, you know, that the intel that you'll get out of that particular tree cam or out of that trail camera on that tree might not necessarily help you that same year because, you know, unless, unless it's a cell cam and you're getting images sent to your, you know, either uh, email or, or text, you know, you're not going to get those, uh, you're not going to get that information until you go swap out that card. And sometimes it, it's uh, it's going to be after that spot was at its peak, um, you know, deer activity. Yep, already in the past. Yep, yep. And so, you know, you just remember that for next year. And so, you know, really a lot of the intel that I get, like for this year, I'm going to be using that for next year. And then I'll, I'll use that information in the off season as well. Um, you know, it seems like the deer were always going over through here instead of over here. Why is that? So, you know, go check it out and maybe enhance it a little bit. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm always I'm always working for strategy for next year, even while I'm hunting this year. No, I like that. Like mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Randy, you were talking about the uh, survival behavior between uh, the half and three-year-old pressured bucks. Go into a little more detail on that and what you're seeing in there on that subject. You know about dealing with that. Sure. You're, you're breaking up a little bit there, Brian, but, yeah, I, th- I think I got drifted it. Um, so, you know, the difference between the two-and-a-half and the three-and-a-half-year-old, um, as far as, let's say, for instance, food plots. So, you know, what I've noticed is that a two-and-a-half-year-old, no, 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 mind you, this is in a pressured area, Um Every, every, pretty much everything that I talk about is always dealing with high-pressured deer. Um, if, if guys down in Iowa are listening to this conversation, they might think I'm, you know, full of BS because a lot of this stuff doesn't happen over there like it does here in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what, what I can tell you is that a lot of our listeners uh, are probably dealing with some of the same stuff we're talking about, and, and the ones that don't, well, darn, they're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they 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 haven't been dealt the same hand that we have to deal with, right? Right, exactly. 
Uh, it doesn't okay, make it then. wrong. It's just yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And hey, more more power to them. And I wish I had that. Yeah, privilege, just jealous. But, uh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> just, we're just yeah. We have to do what we have to do, right? Yeah, exactly. So you know, so as far as food plots go, say the difference between a two and a half and a three and a half is is what I find is that a two and a half he's not um, he's not too bashful about following the does out into the food plot on the same trail as the does. Where those uh, those trails are going perpendicular to the food plot, and um, that three and a half year old though, what I find is very very seldom will that three and a half walk out into a food plot on the same trail that the does take. Um, what I find is that those mature bucks won't even put their nose out into that food plot unless they can first scent check it on the downwind side, and so. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but uh, generally on any really good food source, especially when it's in a in, in a thicker area, it doesn't have to be nasty thick, but if it's got some decent cover, you know, not like a big open high canopy hardwoods, you know, where you can see uh, half a country mile. But um, anything with decent cover, you'll find that these mature bucks will go around that food plot during daylight hours, and they'll scent check on the downwind side before they'll step foot into that food plot. And, you know, they're doing that for two reasons. Well, first to see if there's any danger out there. I mean, there, there's been more hunters probably picked off in a tree by a buck doing that on the downwind side than, than hunters even realize. But then also it's telling that deer if there's any um, does and estrus in that food plot or, you know, whose competition is out in that food plot. So he doesn't have to physically, you know, see uh, into that food plot before he um, before he goes in there to know what's going on. And, and quick question on that: How far off that food plot is this trail? I'm going to say it's generally I yeah, find ish, generally ish. anywhere from 20 to 30 yards. Okay. And it depends on how thick that cover is. Okay. Yep. So, <clears throat> so for instance. Um, I got a, a, just a great example. And, you know, this is a kind of a f- funny, quick story, but uh, I'm going to set this up for you. So earlier this year, I get a call from a guy named Greg. He's, he's kind of frustrated, and he's looking for a piece of property to buy here in Michigan, southern Michigan. Now, mind you, he, he's only been hunting for about you know, 15, 20 years, and he first started hunting way up north near Mayo in Michigan in a oh, lot yeah. of hunting pressure. I know yep. that area well, yep. Yeah, a lot of hunting pressure, and he was going up there with guys from his church. And, and anyway, the, the, the group disbanded, and he really got to liking bow hunting. And so he saw an ad in a paper for some property to lease in Buffalo County, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> so he answers the ad, and they had one opening yet. And so, you know, Greg, he, he uh, I don't know, paid like 750 bucks a year to go hunt this nice piece of property in Buffalo County. And he shot his biggest buck he's ever shot during his uh, hunting years over there in Buffalo County. It was only like two, three years. And it was like a 137 class uh, eight point, you know, a nice deer. And Randy, and then, Randy, for those who don't know what or where Buffalo County is, can you? Right along this, yep, right along Mississippi River, close to Iowa. I mean, it's probably what? I would say one of the top five counties in the whole country for yeah. trophy bucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's crazy. Anyway, so, sorry. You know, Go ahead. He, he 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 had no idea, you know, 
he had no idea how good Buffalo County was compared to everywhere else. <laughs> compared to Mayo, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so then, so then he, he lost permission to hunt that uh, lease. That, you know, that whole lease disbanded, and so here he is looking for property again. He says, "I'm sick of this uh, lease and stuff, so I want to go buy something." Well, he heard that Southern Ohio was good, so he went actually out and bought a piece of property in Southern Ohio, way down there where it's really hilly. And he owned that property for probably three, four years, and he was hunting. He was hunting it with his son. And uh, every time they drive the five hours to get down there, um, they would show up. They would leave their vehicle. They'd walk up into the ridges to where their tree stands were, and they were getting blown at every single time they'd walk to their their tree stands because they're walking the ridges, and that's where all the deer are, you know. And it was just way too hilly and. You know, they didn't use any scent control. And, you know, it's just he's still still kind of, uh, you know, young in his years of hunting. So um, they, they ended up selling the property, and his son was so disgusted with, with all this driving and never seeing any deer that he basically gave up hunting. And so, uh, you know, Greg is saying, man, I've got I've to find a better piece of property closer to home. You know, he wants to have his son uh, hunt with him again. So he calls me up and says, hey, I'm looking for this property. He told me the whole story. And he says, well, you know, I'm looking at this property over here in uh, near Mason. And what do you think of that? You know, and he, I, I look at it. I'm on the, we're on the phone. I'm looking at Google Map. You know, and he's looking at Google Map on his computer. And I go, boy, Greg, I don't know. It's got a lot of small properties around it, you know. And his goal is to, you know, shoot 150 class inch buck uh, at some point. And he wants to be able to see, you know. A good chance I'm, I'm shooting a 130, 140, 150 every year. I says, boy, with all those small properties bordering it, you know, that's that's going to be a tough, it's going to be a tough um, um, realization, you know, to, to oh, achieve. Sure. Yep. You know, there's just way too many hunters uh, packed in the in a small area. So uh, we, we looked at a couple other properties online. Then a couple weeks later, he says, hey, I got this other property I'm looking at over Calhoun County, and uh, we looked at it, and right away I, I I knew it was going to be something that held a lot of promise because it was about a 50-acre swamp lake on the southwest corner. And it's uh, not accessible by any kind of boat or anything because it's complete cattails all the way around this thing. And this is one huge lake. And so I knew that that, uh, that body of water was going to be holding a lot of big bucks well into their four and five years of age. And it really gave these mature bucks the possibility of long-term survival, where they could actually, you know, have a good place to go hide once the lead starts flying. And it was 120, 120 acres, um, 70, 70 was eggs, 50 was wooded, but it had it had at least three or four other ponds that was, you know, completely surrounded by cattails. And this place was just one of the best pieces of property I, I had ever seen. We went and looked at it, and he just wanted he just wanted to make sure that I thought that there was big buck potential. I says, Greg, there's multiple big buck potential here, and so with that in mind, you know, he went and signed on the on the dotted line. He bought the property, and the very next weekend, uh, we actually did some serious scouting, and man, we were finding isolated deer beds and these cattails just all over the place. And he's just like, man, how do you know where all these, you know? How do you how do you know that all these bucks are going to be there? You know, and anyway, I said, trust me, Greg. I says you you found a diamond in a rough here. So anyway, we, I worked on it, uh, did some habitat work for him for about seven or eight days, 
spread out throughout the whole summer. Started at around late May. We finally got done at around uh, Labor Day, around almost the last or first weekend in, in September. We could have put up a couple of redneck blinds that created some food plots. Uh, but the one thing that we had is I had a forestry mulcher come in. There was no way I was going to go back to that uh, weed whip again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Had, had a forestry mulcher come in, I'm not kidding you guys, in seven hours flat. He did, four, he did a mile and a half of trail through the nastiest, thickest stuff that runs right along the water's edge. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, old automiles. He just chewed them up and spit them out, you know. It, it was it was beautiful. I mean, it was just amazing. Um, he cleared out four little micro food plots in, in a mile and a half of trail through thick stuff in seven hours. Wow. And, and there was hardly anything to do after he left. I mean, it was it was clean. He did a great job. Uh, and matter of fact, there, there's a video if you wanted to see um, him in action on that day. Um, I just noticed that I had a video of that on my YouTube channel that was unlisted. So I just made it public just a couple hours ago. Oh, nice. Uh, it's it's called um, it's called Forestry Mulcher Improves Deer Habitat. Okay. So you just throw that in YouTube, Forestry Mulcher Improves Deer Habitat. It'll take you right to that video. And it's, it's only a little two-minute montage of what he did and the thick stuff that he went through. But the one big thing... One big thing I told the forestry mulcher, hey, you know, here we got this half-acre food plot, and it was totally dominated with autumn olive. I says, whatever you do, we don't want to clear off this whole food plot. I mean, we want to leave about at least a dozen islands of cover in here. So it's going to be like a maze. And I says, I want to be able to have 12 deer feeding in this food plot and none of them be able to see each other. Wow. He cool. says, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. So he did he did an, an absolute Yep, he did a great job. And and so I, I guess one big takeaway, you know, from people that uh if if you have an opportunity to create a food plot in maybe a big CRP field or, you know, some you know, a field that's got a lot of buck brush and just you know, whatever you do, just don't clear the whole thing out if you don't have to. I mean, think about how how many different doe family groups that you can have in an area like that when you have all these pockets of cover that you don't disturb? Um, you know, because I think what a lot of land managers would want to do and landowners is they're going to do what they see on TV and get yeah. that brush hog out and clear that whole field out. Man, I got me a five-acre food plot. Yeah. Well, it's great in Iowa, but, you know, where the pressured mature bucks are, they're not stepping foot out there after, you know, Labor Day in most cases. No, That's I, I point. made that mistake. Um, I I made, like, a, it's not even a full acre, but now I'm trying to throw a, a screen, you know, up the middle of it, trying to create a pinch point, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when from the beginning I should have just carved it out a little bit differently with the uh, skid steer and the brush hog, but... I, I fully get that, and I think were you kind of talking back about the sneak trail and how the buck can can scent check the whole food plot and see the whole food plot from from yep. off the trail, and now with this this maze and pocket effect, it, I mean, what does that change? Why did you make the food plot more like that? So, what I'm trying to do is encourage more deer usage in during the daytime in that food plot because of all the cover that remains inside that food plot. 
And so um, I also created a really nice uh, dull bedding area just off that food plot as well. And so if if I can get mature bucks in the area <clears throat> to think that this is one of the coolest food plots around and one of the most secure food plots, he's probably going to be more willing to check that when he's searching for estrostoes. <clears throat> so, um, so to finish the story, um, <laughs> I told Greg. So, so Greg's got a uh, Greg's got a real good friend of his. They hunt together, and uh, his name is Steve. And I, I got those guys to agree not to go hunt that automobile food plot until late October. And, mm-hmm. and mind you, this was in the core of Greg's property, and this was. This was only, I'm going to say, probably 100 yards from that 50-acre swampy lake. And and this is where we got most of our trail cam picks of mature bucks. It was right between that swampy lake and this automobile food plot. I says, you know, we erected a 15-foot um, redneck blind, and we, we, kept that, we kept that redneck blind about 15 yards inside the cover, you know, off the food plot, kind of like in the woods and the pines. And it was kind of it was kind of funny when when we were going to put that uh, blind up, you know. Greg and Steve were asking, "Okay, we're we're gonna where we're gonna put this blind up?" I said, "We're gonna put it way back in over here." They kind of looked at me like, "How are we gonna get that thing in there?" You know, I said, "We're gonna drive. We're gonna drive your uh, ATV. We're gonna pull it onto a trailer. We're gonna drive it right through the woods. You're gonna back it in. We're gonna plop it right back here behind all this brush and all these, you know, all these trees and whatnot." Well, man, that seems like way too hard. Why don't we just put it right here on the edge of the food plot? You know, that's what everybody else does. That's true. Very we, true. You know, we, we got to keep it way back in the cover because, you know, you got to understand there's these mature bucks, they know what those towers are. And sure, there might, there might not be a lot of guys that agree with me on this, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mature bucks out there that know exactly what a, what a big high tower is in the middle of a, of a, you know, or, or on the edge of a food plot or big field. And it generally isn't associated with anything good during hunting season. So, right, makes sense. Yeah, so we ended up getting this uh, 15-foot redneck blind back in the cover. It was a pain in the butt, but we horseshoed it in there. And um, and so the one last thing I knew I needed to do was I needed to create a sink trail going around that south side of that food plot and make that sink trail end up right out in front of that redneck blind. And so um, I did some hinge cutting, created a, a snake trail about 20 yards into the woods. And, uh, you know, we got that food plot planted. And I, I got those guys to agree, now, you know, we can't hunt back here until late October. And then even then, we have to wait till we get either a north wind or a northeast wind. Because, you know, once we get that food in there and got these does in this food plot all the time, if you come in here in early October, you're gonna, you're going to, um, you know, you're you're gonna muck up the uh, the integrity and the safety and security in this food plot. So you got to leave these does unmolested, and then you know, give them that false sense of security. And all of a sudden, you show up one day around Halloween with the right wind. It's going to be a total ambush. And so anyway, last week Saturday, you can look it up. But in Calhoun County, they had a northeast wind last week Saturday, and uh, I get this text from from Greg. He says, hey, uh, Steve just shot a big one. Oh, nice. I, I go, cool, really? I says, what, what, where was he sitting? I had no idea what stand they were going to sit in, you know. 
And he says, well, it was a northeast wind, so we sat in that 15-foot redneck. I go, nice. And uh, so, anyway, he sent me a picture, and, oh, my word, man, I just could not believe. I was so happy for these guys. Uh, Steve had a uh, – Steve put a real good shot on a 160-inch um, buck with a head. 12 and a half inch G2s. <laughs> I mean, it, wow. it was like, really? Serious. Yeah. He says, and, and so, uh, Drake gives the phone to Steve, and Steve is about, you know, jumping out of his boots. He says, I cannot believe this happened just the way you said it was going to, you know. <laughs> he, he said that buck came right down that state trail and came right out, and at the end of the trail, he was 22 yards from standing right in front of that redneck line. He says, I. Mm-hmm. He just could not believe it. And uh, so anyway, yeah, that, that buck, he had scent checked that whole food plot on the south side with that north wind, and he ended up right in front of that blind. And, yeah, so, so you know, that's just one example of, um, you know, how you can make your habitat work for you if you understand, you know, what these mature bucks want to do um, naturally with their instincts. And, uh you know, really, once you understand that, they, they do become pretty predictable. Wow. Right. But, but you know, you just have to have the patience and the willpower to not want to go in early when the conditions aren't aren't perfect. You know, if it calls for a northeast wind, you know, you, you, just have to, you just have to wait and keep looking at that 10-day forecast. Uh, hopefully, it can be a post-cold front and you have that correct wind after a post-cold front. So... Um, I, I got to tell you guys, you know, even even while we were working on this property, we only got pictures of uh, mature bucks just a few times on this property. And um, the first time we put our trail cams out was sometime in June. And finally, on early July, we had our first pick of a couple of mature bucks, and that was right on a pulse cold front. Went through the whole month of July, went through the whole month of August, and the next time we had a really strong cold front was August 30. And uh, I didn't realize it when I saw the picture, but then I went back and I, I always compare a lot of my picks to the uh, his, history graph on Weather Underground website. And lo and behold, right. August 30 was a pulse cold front. And that was from July 6th to August 30. Um, what was, you know, the, the two closest days that we had picks of these bucks and it was both, both days it was a pulse cold front. So, you know, look what happened to Jake Ehlinger this this year. You know, October four, he yeah. shot pretty boy, post cold front. Oh yeah, right with the correct yeah. wind. And you know, if if you go through some of these uh, groups on Facebook, all the bucks that were put down on the ground October four and five was incredible. Oh my gosh, yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. And when you so, say post cold front, you mean the day after the front hits, not the yep. day of. Not the day of. Only you know the day of. I've had luck on the day of, too, but I'm just curious to why you think the day after, or is the day of still good, or what are your thoughts on that? You know, I'm never going to say that uh, the day of is not a good day. I mean, especially in the whitetail world, there there are no absolutes, right? Right. I mean, there's never any absolutes. But we're, you know, hey, we only have so many days to hunt, and so the days that we do get to hunt, um, I, I like to try and up my chances and percentages the most. And and so the difference between the day of and the day after is your winds are a lot calmer, and so you're going to have less swirling. Um, your barometer is going to be higher after the um, cold front has gone through. And because your winds are going to be a little bit lighter, you're going to have less swirling 
And uh, generally, you know, the, the weather is just going to be more conducive for a buck to be able to be able to use his senses, his nose and his ears and his eyes to keep him out of trouble. Yep. Where you know, I think when the when the weather's a little bit windier, um, you know, the, so I don't know if you've ever been in a tree stand, but you, if you ever seen a doe or a buck, they they wind you, and it's a real crazy windy day. They have no idea where it came from. Because one minute the wind's coming out of this direction, the next second it's coming out of that direction. It's like, wow, which way do I run? <laughs> That's a good point. I never thought about that. Right. So um, I always like to I always like to pull smoke front. Okay. So another another example about the pulse cold front, though, real quick, is uh, I've got another client that I worked on all summer in uh, up in the Cedar Springs area, and you might remember uh, some of the pics I might have posted of this. Uh, long food plot that was created with a, an excavator early this summer. Yep. And he had built a big wall, took all the trees down with an excavator, and then built this big, huge wall that was basically going to cause deer to come from bedding. And they hit that wall, they have to go right or left. So they're going to go to one, they're going to go by one tree stand, or on the other end, they're going to go by his uh, enclosed blind. So, you know, when these deer are coming out of their bedding areas uh, on the south end, they're coming straight north to the food plot. And uh, um, the, the landowner, Bill, he was, um, we, we got a, a really good uh, trail cam, a set of trail cam picks. I believe it was sometime mid-September, and it was on a post cold front. And uh, so I says, hey, you know, here you go, Bill. you got a north wind, post cold front. Guess what they're doing? At the end of the day, they're walking nose into the wind on a post cold front, and that's your most likely time that these mature bucks are going to walk past this bank spline. So, you know, once we get to October, you know, make sure you're looking for that north wind, you know, whether it's post-cold front or not. So he missed the night of October 4 when we had a north wind, the, the same night that Jake shot his buck. And I sent him a picture of Jake's buck after Jake sent it to me. And he says, oh, man, I can't believe it. I forgot to go hunting on that day, you know. He says, shoot. And I says, well, hey, uh, be ready. You know, we're going to have another one coming up here in another you know, 10 days, it could change by the time the 10-day gets here. But sure enough, it was, it was I don't know, a week or so later. And um, he got no trail cam picks uh, since October 4 of any buck coming through um, that little uh, ambush spot. And then so the, it was the day of, um, it was last week, last week Thursday, around the Cedar Springs area, we had a north wind. I says, Bill, you got to get into that blind. Wind's coming right out of the north. Um, it's it's good chance. So he gets in that thing, and doggone if it wasn't three hours later, uh, he sent me a text of the biggest fuck he ever shot, going right through that thing, coming out of the bedding area. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, nice. You know, it's, right, with the right wind conditions on a post-cold front, you know, it's it's a – you don't even really have to pattern the bucks. You know, that really is your pattern. It's the, it's the post-cold front with the right wind condition. That, that's that's the pattern that you're really looking for. So it's it's never it's never steered me wrong, you know. Always had good luck doing that. No, I I like that. And on your example with the wall of trees, it sounds like he would have to have been hunting on some sort of northerly wind. So whether it was a a northwest wind, I imagine you'd put him on the east side and vice versa. Is that correct or? Um, in this particular case, um, it would have been any kind of a northerly wind because, um, 
the bedding areas along the swamp were in the southeast corner of the property. And so they were they were going to be on the east side of that property anyway. So they would have naturally been going around the east side of that wall. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's where the, the better of the two food plots were as well. And, uh, you know, again, his bank's blind was was way back off the uh, was way back off the deer trail, a good 15, 20 yards. Okay. So, gotcha. uh, yep. Yeah, you know, because otherwise, uh, if it's right there within five yards of that deer trail, I mean, these mature bucks are going to be going by that blind with, you know, kind of like one eye on that blind walking yeah. all the, you know, it's just, oh, uh, boy. So, yeah, um, it's just a little bit different kind of hunting than, than what a lot of guys might be used to seeing on TV. But, you know, it really is it really is a case where if you can get your habitat right and you can make all your conditions perfect for these deer to want to live on your property and know that it's a safe place to live, uh, it still doesn't really mean that you're going to be successful if you can't restrain yourself from overhunting it in, in October and letting the deer know that it's, it's that it is being hunted because it really doesn't take, you know, these mature deer in high-pressured areas to realize whether a property is safe to move around during daylight or not. I think that was very well said. Right. Um, I mean, and and just a quick comment. It seems like your customers have some really nice deer blinds. Does that ever cross your mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, it just so happens that uh, that Bill got a couple of Banks blinds, and and Greg in Calhoun County, he went out and got a couple of real nice redneck blinds. Those are nice um, blinds. The, the, that's not the norm. You know, most most of my clients are, you know, using. Um, you know, tree stands and whatnot are homemade blinds, but these two guys, they just happen to have uh, these nice blinds, I'll tell you. The older I get, guys, the more more appealing they get, too, you know. Yeah, no. I <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> Good for them, no doubt. Um, I, I, I think that's awesome. and I'm, It sounds like you have two happy campers. I mean, 116-inch buck in Michigan. Oh, my goodness. Good job. Um, now, Randy. Yikes. How how can more people find out about you? Do you want to tell us about what Seymour Bucks or uh, Strategic Habitat is? Or let's dive into that. Sure. So you know, Seymour Bucks is something that I started with uh, you know my good friend Jake Elinger several years ago, and really it was just a situation where there wasn't really a whole lot of um, uh, in depth how-to information on improving deer habitat out there, available. Um, there, there is more now, obviously, but uh, even the stuff that's out there now, there's a lot of stuff on how-to, but there's not a whole lot of stuff on why. Okay, you know, I understand how to do this, but why? You know, why, why am I doing this? And so, you know, what Jake and I have found, too, is that it's, it's, um, it's kind of tough to get landowners to buy into why, why they should do things differently. Um, because, you know, if you think about it, a lot of landowners, they're in their 40s and 50s by the time they, um, you know, have the money saved up to buy a nice piece of property and then they want to fix it up and everything. Um, you know, so by the time they're 40 and 50 years old, they've already got 20 to 30 years of hunting under their belt. And generally by that time, you know, they, they're kind of locked into their own method and own system and belief level of, of how to hunt. Good point. And, you know, and then we come along and say, well, you know, yeah, that's great, but, you know, it would work better if you did it this way, and then it would work better if you, you know, hunted, hunted the stand on that type of day. And 
And, you know, it, it, it really can be tough to get people to buy into it. And so, you know, the idea behind Seymour Bucks was to um, not only explain the how-to, but, but the why behind everything. And so Seymour Bucks has got uh, – it's a membership site because, you know, we don't, we don't take any advertisers. Um, you know, we've, we've, never, we've never sponsored – taken any sponsors on because we wanted to make sure that, you know, our information wasn't compromised because, you know, so-and-so had a better – you know, like, like for instance, uh, take something like the Ferminator, you know. Um, it's a great piece of machinery, you know, for a food plot tool. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a um, uh, no-till guy. So, you know, a guy like me, it wouldn't be right for me to, you know, promote something like the Ferminator if I'm a no-till guy. <laughs> Very true. Very true. So, you, you know. We, we've gone down that road a long time ago and said, hey, we're just not going to take any sponsors. And so we created a membership level, and it's, geez, dirt cheap, you know, for the information that that uh, that a guy can get to and not have to mess around with ads. And, you know, everything is categorized um, inside of a membership site by uh, seven different categories, you know, about food plots and hinge cutting and, and all the different stuff. So um, you can pretty much find what you need right away. and. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of these videos were were filmed on Jake's property, and you know, I know there's a lot of guys out there that would love to see Jake's property, and and so um, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's just uh, <laughs> there, there's there's a lot of videos in there of, of Jake and I, uh, you know, especially Jake explaining how he does things and why. So you know, there's two levels in in Seymour Bucks. There's um, habitat, what we call Habitat University is just a collection of about 100 videos that, uh, you know, for less than 100 bucks you can get lifetime membership and watch these videos as much as you want, anytime you want, you know, on a smartphone even. And then the other membership level is uh, it's, a, it's a monthly, month-to-month, no time commitment, but it's called the core group. And the core group is a little bit different. It, it goes a little bit more into in-depth in um, how-tos and whys on specific things. And what that is is uh, every week or every 10 days, I create about a 45-minute to an hour webinar. And it's it's very informational um, on whatever topic we're talking about. And, you know, it's not only just about habitat, but also hunting practices, hunting setups and ambush, you know, setups and whatnot. And, you know, we call that the core group, and that's just a month-to-month thing. So a little bit different, but uh, some guys join both, some guys join one or the other. And uh, so that's Seymour Bucks, and then you know, Strategic Habitat is is my is my own uh, habitat consulting uh, business. So uh, at strategichabitat.com. So you know, outside of Seymour Bucks, Jake and I we both have our own habitat consulting business. Okay. No, you know, and I, I guess I guess I should I guess I should say Jake is, um. You know, Jake used to go all over the place. He's trying to dial it back a little bit as far as the amount of distance that he travels. Um, and, you know, he still likes to get down to, you know, Illinois, Missouri. Uh, he's even gone to Kansas recently. So, you know, he's still going out into those areas. But, uh, you know, as, as far as going east or anything like that, uh, he doesn't he doesn't get out there as far. So I try and concentrate on, you know, the further out points. And I, like last year, earlier this year, I was um, – it's in the Catskill Mountains over in eastern New York. That was just, man, just a phenomenal piece of property. 
um, Newman down in Pennsylvania and uh, Kentucky, Southern Illinois, and, and uh, man, I'll tell you, in the wintertime, it sure is fun getting out of the snow here, snow here in Michigan and seeing some of these big trees that have just been, you know, ripped apart by some of these bucks you, you just don't normally see here in Michigan. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. No, that's that's pretty cool. I'm glad you brought that up. I know, uh, you know, and we're just a little bit different in these, in these high-pressured states. So to be able to get out and, and see some of these other places and help some guys, you know, you're in Brian's neck of the woods or, or even, like you said, New York. I mean, my friend Eric, he lives in New York, and uh, he's a big fan of the podcast. Like, I'm people that can relate to you are not just located in Michigan, right? I mean, this is high-pressure area, um, very strategic in terms of wind, scent control, timing being right, etc. I mean, it's not just people here that can right. you know, take advantage yep. of this. Yeah, exactly. Matter of fact, uh, you know, if, if I get some I get some guys that, uh, you know, contact me here, or especially like in Jake's area on the east side of the state, I'll just refer them to Jake and say, hey, call Jake, and, you know, he'll take good care of you. And then, uh, you know, if Jake gets calls from people that are, you know, way out of his travel area, you know, he'll just refer them to me. So um, we kind of help each other out that way a little bit. Yep. <clears throat> So, Randy, chat about your uh, fall hunting and land plants. Are you uh, here this time? Yeah. So, you know, my fall hunting this year, um, like I said, I'm first year I'm not going out of state. I can't believe I'm saying that. But I'm going to concentrate a little bit more up there in that APR zone. Um, you know, it, it's I haven't been able to do that as much lately in, in years past when, since I've been going out of state. But I really would like to, you know, take a nice buck off of state land up north, and generally it's Osceola County, which is where I try and concentrate most of my uh, APR zone hunting. And then, okay. um, yeah, and and so then, uh, you know, probably going to start getting pretty busy as far as uh, visiting properties again come December after most states' um, firearm season is done. You know, maybe they'll have a late muzzleloader season, but um, guys generally want to start getting you know, the ball rolling right away. And so uh, that'll start in December and generally runs pretty hot and heavy right through, you know, April or May. And, uh, but I, I would like to, and maybe I, I can do this on one of my, uh, you know, client trips, but would like to get back down to Kentucky again and just do some postseason scouting on public land down in Kentucky. Um, man, they got some, just some awesome property down there and very few bow hunters, you know. Really? So, right. Yeah, you know, I, I really think Kentucky is kind of like Ohio was uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago. I don't know. It seems like Ohio has become the destination for a lot of Michigan hunters. Yes, that's very true. So you're thinking Kentucky is the next sleeper for us, uh, you know, Michigander, PA, New York type guys, huh? Yeah, I, I really do. Indiana, you know, I really even, yeah. Hear, yeah, I don't hear a lot of guys going to uh, Kentucky and um, you know, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, uh, you know. <laughs> well, guess what? The, uh, the, the, the 19 listeners we have are going to be going down together yeah. December. <laughs> so, you know, I'll eat you. Why not? I'll just even throw it out there. I, I prefer Western Kentucky over Eastern Kentucky. So, oh, there you yeah. go. Thanks, Randy. Yeah. It, um, it, it's just, I don't know, something, something about it down there. It's just, it's just 
I just love it down there. Um, I love that Ohio River. But, um, you know, I'm looking in, in, in to continue in your question there, Brian. I guess in 2019, um, I'll probably start my search again for another property. Um, I don't think I, I explained this, but I did sell that 50-acre piece of property in Lake County uh, earlier this year. Uh, oh, okay. You know, because... You know, when I bought that thing, um, like I said, it was four years just after it had been select cut, and I kind of figured that uh, being in the APR zone, probably interest would, would start to uh, increase for guys wanting to hunt the APR zone, but then also this piece is, you know, going to be a heck of a bedding area, which it, which it is right now. And so I was able to get, you know, I was able to sell it. So it's kind of like, you know, just flipping a house, right? I mean, I went in there and did the habitat work, and then I sold it, and yeah, I did all right, but... um you know, it just wasn't the type of property that I, w- I wanted to hang on to long term. You know, it's really sandy, and it was just some things about it that, you know, uh, for a long term purchase and having my grandkids come up eventually, it just wasn't that. Uh, that wasn't the, the place to be. So, I'm going to try and look for that here uh, this or next year in 2019. So, um, yeah, I guess the other thing. Um, the other thing I'll probably end up doing is every every year I like to work on about two or three client properties. So, you know, this year I worked on Greg's property in Calhoun County, um, and then I worked on Bill's property up in Cedar Springs. So, you know, 2019 I'll probably look for two or three more uh, clients who actually want the work done. Uh, most of the time, you know, I just create the habitat plan and, you know, every client that gets a habitat plan from me, you know, where I visit the property, they also get membership into the uh, Habitat University and get access to all the videos for free, too, because it's kind of like continuing education. There's just so much to okay. learn on there. There's awesome. no way I can I, no way I can cover it in one day, uh, you know, while I'm walking the property. And generally, you know, you're only going to you're only going to retain about 15 percent, you know, of what you verbally hear anyway. And so a week later, you know, a lot of it's, it's going to be a lot of it's going to be gone, so I give all my clients uh, membership into that, and it's just uh, it saves them a lot of questions um, and, and really gives them uh, almost like a step-by-step playbook on what to do when on their property to execute the plan that I come up for them. So, um, but as far as the two, yeah, as far as the two or three client properties that I actually do the work on. Um, Really, I'm looking for, you know, clients that are within 100 miles of Grand Rapids that um, they're not crazy about doing the hinge cutting and, and some of the other work like that. And so um, I say 100 miles because it, it's it's kind of similar to what Jim Ward does, um, but, but not quite. You know, I think Jim, Jim Ward's a rock star when it comes, you know, to the habitat industry. I mean, who cuts more trees for deer habitat than Jim Ward on, <laughs> on the face of the planet, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, you know, Jim, when he shows up to a property, he'll be there for two, three, four, maybe five days at a time, and then he's he's off to another state onto another property, you know. Um, what I do is, is I'll go to a property, and I'll be there for one day. I'll be there from sunup to sundown, and then I might not show back up again for another two weeks. And then I'll, I'll work from sunup to sundown, and then maybe it'll be another two or three weeks before I show up again. And, and I'll do that throughout the whole summer. So by the time we get to Labor Day, I've probably been on the property six to eight times. And, you know, what I find is, for one thing, uh, man, I'm getting too old to be, um, you know, cutting trees like that for three days straight. I mean, 
I, I'd hate to work for Jim. I, my butt would be dragging <laughs> on the ground trying to follow him around. You know? <laughs> but, you know, one thing, that, hot. <laughs> one thing that I like about, um, you know, spreading it out like that throughout the summer is it gives me a chance to, to finish a lot of the tasks that you can only do at certain times of the year. So, obviously, you know, if you're going to show up at a property in, in May and work for three days straight and then you're gone, well, uh, you know, what if the landowner doesn't want to plant his fall food plots himself? So it gives me the opportunity to go in there like in May and spray. And then when I come back the next time, it'll all be dead, and I can maybe spray it again the second time. Um, you know, I can also do the hinge cutting on one day, and then the next time I come back, a lot of that stuff will settle. And then I can go in there and do the detail work, create deer beds, buck beds, and whatnot. And, um, you know, so it, it, I find that it really helps to um, – be able to complete the work in stages because a lot of that work needs to be done in stages throughout the summertime anyway. So, and then what I'll do is a lot of times I'll, I'll document the work that I do on video. So, you know, a lot of times I'm uh, just explaining what I'm doing as I'm working on a client property, and then I'll use that footage uh, for some of my 45-minute um, webinars for some of the uh, website members. So they, they kind of get to follow along as I work on the property. Oh, very cool. Okay. No, I like that. And and maybe you'll uh maybe you'll grab a uh a new customer off this. Who knows? Yeah, well that um generally by you know the first of December, um the calendar starts filling up, but you know, generally that happens when you know we get through gun season and guys still have a tag in their pocket and they're frustrated, that's when uh yeah. that's when they start coming out of the woodwork. So <laughs> Right. <laughs> right, yeah. No, it's just sure beats selling pallets, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, or like me, selling plastic bottles, so I hear you. <laughs> well, Randy, I wanted to thank you for coming on. Um, how can somebody get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out? You know, the best way really is my email address, uh, pretty simple, uh, randy at seymourbucks.com. And, uh, yeah, that's that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, you know, I really appreciate your time coming on. I know I always say that, but I, I truly do. Um, and, you know, I wish you luck over the next few days. I know you're going to be out in the woods doing some all-day sits. And uh, your comment earlier to me has uh, got me going out in the woods to do some all-day sits later this week. So I'm going to take <laughs> some of that advice and, and go put some time in. Uh, I haven't been out much, so I'm, I'm very excited to get out Thursday, Friday. Some Saturday, maybe Sunday. How about you? When are you getting out? Uh, Thursday, Friday for sure. Um, you know, I know we've got a cold front coming in late Saturday, Sunday. Um, not going to be able to be out in the woods uh, Saturday night or Sunday. So, yeah, I was hoping that that cold front would get moved up a day or two, but not in the cards. And I'm going out with my son-in-law who, you know, he's he's got to have planned vacation days. So, yeah. you know, it is what it is, but. You know, I kind of take the whole cold front thing and kind of throw it out the window this time of year because I was going to yeah, say yes. When you got the chasing going on, you got does and estrus, and anything can happen at any time. So, uh, yeah, for um, sure, got to be out there. Well, hey, Randy, good luck, and uh, I hope you and your son-in-law put one down. Shoot me a text if you do. I, I sure will, and good luck to you too, Jared and Brian. Um, now that was a lot of good information again. Jared, keep coming up with some great guests. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this one.
Oh, I I agree, Brian. I uh, you never hear enough from from just some good you know guys who who've been in the business long enough, and I just feel like I I mean you should see my notepad over here. I have I've written down so many things that the the paper is curling at the edges, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'm with you. I know exactly what you mean. Well, I want to thank Randy again for coming on, and Brian, you for coming on as well. Thank you. Um, you know, I appreciate the help on here, and and I want to thank our listeners. You know, first and foremost for for your loyalty and and coming back. If you guys ever have any feedback, just let us know. Um, I saw a couple new reviews on iTunes last week, so I'm going to find out who those guys are and get them some decals. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Packer Max line of call to Packers with Lincoln Roan. Uh, great product there. And another great product from Nick Nation is the Habitat Hook. Um, you know, deer season will be ending uh, very soon, unfortunately, you know, another month and a half or so, and it'll be time to get that hook out. So you can find out more. From the guys, Brian and I, at the Habitat Podcast, uh, go on their website, habitatpodcast.com. We're filling it up with some blog posts right now. Our YouTube has launched. Brian made a badass uh, a teaser, if you will, about the Habitat, po- Habitat Podcast TV. It's going to come out and uh, some video things we will be doing in the future. And then um, also find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, any other place you can listen to a podcast, uh, should be able to find us. So, last but not least, Instagram and Facebook, both are at Habitat Podcasts, and uh, you know we'd love to see your fe- your uh, feedback on there. We post pictures, projects, videos, hunts, all on our Facebook as well. So, check that out, guys, and thanks for listening. As we become better habitat managers, get out. Enjoy your woods, it's a rut, and good luck.